All right, that's enough of that. And welcome back to another Sound the Battle Cry. I'm your host, Nate, Nate Marino, and uh, today we're going to be talking about Santa Claus. Aren't you glad that I shut that off? I am too. But you know, you're going to be hearing much more of that for the next few weeks, time after time after time again. Every time you go into a store, every time you turn on the radio, you will hear the Christmas songs. And a lot of these songs are about a little old guy, old Saint Nick, they call him, Santa Claus, Sinterklaas. And uh, old Saint Nick. And I think that we need to talk about Santa Claus today because it is a very important topic that comes up and uh, when it comes to the holiday time. And uh, it's even a topic that needs to be talked about with Christians because there are, believe it or not, some Christians who think it's okay to teach their children about Santa Claus and teach that Santa Claus is real and that it's uh, it's a nice little story to tell children, to lie to them, and uh, because it's just a fantasy. And uh, tell them that he comes and every Christmas and comes down the chimney Gives them some presents to children all over the world if they've been naughty or nice. And what do the lyrics say? So be good for goodness sake. It doesn't say be good because God wants you to be good, but uh, for goodness sake. So there's a lot to talk about today. So I'm going to get pretty quickly get right into the material. But we are going to be talking about um, who... Santa Claus really is where this mythology came from. Why do we even have this weird uh, celebration every year where we talk about some fat old guy in a red suit that comes down the chimney and gives presents to children all over the world and he's like watching them all the time to see if they've been good or not. Uh, it's quite a it's it's a very uh, strange figure. And uh, then we're also going to be talking about is sometimes his little-known helper uh, by the name of Krampus, Krampus, and uh, some of you may know, some of you may not know. You may never have heard of the Black Devil, also known as Krampus, that is his helper, and this originates in, in the European mythologies. But um, there's a lot to learn here, and it's good to educate yourself on these subjects because you don't want to just do something without having any idea why you're doing it, Right. I would hope so, and uh, that you could also be better educated to tell other people why you don't participate in certain things and um, to actually know what you're talking about. But it's a, it is an important topic because, and probably the biggest reason that this is so important is because this is being taught to children, and children are being lied to, and then that does affect them when they get older and they find out that Santa Claus was a lie. It wasn't real, and then uh, that affects their trust of their parents, and it also affects their trust of their parents when their parents try to tell them about Jesus Christ, and that's why we need to make this show. So, we're going to get right into this, and uh, I hope you pay attention. Let's get into it. So, Santa Claus. So, a lot of this stuff I, I took from this... Um, good article that was written by Terry Watkins called Santa Claus the Great Imposter, okay, from av1611.org. I trimmed out a lot of it because 
it was so long that uh, it would have taken forever to do the show. So let's get into it. And the first argument people would say is what? But it is just fantasy. Come on. It's just fantasy, right? It's just make-believe. Let the kids have some fun, huh? It's just fantasy. Come on. What's the big deal? Nobody takes it serious. And that's where you are wrong, dead wrong, dead wrong. Those little children take their Santa Claus very serious. They literally worship him. They believe and love Santa with all their heart. They do. And most parents would never teach their beautiful little children such a lie as Santa Claus. Most parents would never openly lie to their children, especially something that is a blasphemous imposter of the Lord Jesus. And Satan knows this. So he disguises the lie in a nice little package. And and before I continue, by the way, if any of you are thinking this is funny, you think it's a big joke that I'm connecting it to Satan and talking about Satan and stuff, don't make yourself look like a fool, okay? You're laughing to yourself. You're just making yourself look like a fool because you're ignorant. You are ignorant, and I'm going to prove it to you from with the historical facts of who Santa Claus and Krampus are, okay? And you will see the connection. You will see what is, is clearly taught, and it is admitted by those who have perpetuated these mythologies, all right? So Satan disguises the lie in a nice little package of make-believe and fantasy. He creates a harmless old jolly fellow that just loves little children. And most parents think, now what could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that? It's Santa Claus, come on. Fantasy. Satan's magic weapon. That's true, fantasy. You know, people talk about that. It's just fantasy, it's just fantasy. Well, what is fantasy? Fantasy is the imagination. And the Bible says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. Imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. Okay? So part of spiritual warfare is casting down imaginations. Well, guess what? Fantasy, it's an imagination. Santa Claus is a imagination it's a fantasy satanist anton lavey author of the satanic bible and founder of the church of satan writes fantasy is a magic weapon in satanism quote this is what anton lavey said founder of the church of satan fantasy plays an important role in any religious curriculum for the subjective mind is less discriminating about the quality of its food than it is about the taste thus fantasy is utilized as a magic weapon In Satanism, the Satanist maintains a storehouse of avowed fantasy gathered from all cultures and from all ages, okay? And and now Anton LaVey was what is known as an atheistic Satanist. He didn't believe openly. He didn't believe in in, uh, a literal devil. But there are those theistic Satanists who do. So if he admits this as an atheistic Satanist, imagine what the Luciferians believe in the the theistic Satanist. Uh, But anyways, he made an important point about fantasy. Plays an important role, and it's a magic weapon. All right? LeVay knows the message of Satan can be quietly preached under the mask of fantasy. That's what he was saying. You use fantasy to teach children and others 
what you want them to learn. You don't just do it openly and say, here's the devil, worship me. You repackage it as something nicer, okay? And this is what I was talking about. If you go back and listen to my other show, which is called Dangers of the Truth Movement, New Age Enlightenment repackaged as witchcraft and, um, I'm sorry, I said it backwards, Gnosticism and witchcraft repackaged as New Age Enlightenment, okay? So the witchcraft, the evil stuff is repackaged as new age, as enlightenment, as something nice. Okay, so Satan loves to come in different forms. The Bible says what? Satan appears as an angel of light. He doesn't come as the red horned figure right in your face. Sometimes he does, but most of the time, most people don't won't accept that. So he needs a nicer version that people will accept. Okay, and uh, so let's continue. LeVay knows that the message of Satan can be quietly preached under the mask of fantasy. Parents will allow things such as Santa Claus under the cloak of fantasy into their little child's tender mind that under serious circumstances they would never allow in a million years. It is just fantasy, but in the vulnerable mind of that little child, it is truth, okay? And that's what's very important. To a child, it's a lot different than you as an adult. You may see, oh, it's fantasy, it's just goofy, who cares, it doesn't mean anything to me. To a child's mind, it is way different, okay? And you better be extremely careful what you teach a child and what you tell a child, okay? The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, that's true whether you train him in good or in evil, okay? Of course, you and I do not take Santa very serious. We know Santa Claus is fantasy, but those little children are deceived into believing with all their heart in a God. That's a replacement for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what Santa Claus is. What happens when these little children realize that Santa Claus is a lie? What happens when they are later presented with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What happens when they're asked to trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, they once once they find out you lied to them about Santa, and now you expect them to believe in Jesus? Santa is Satan's counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you get that child believing with all their heart in Santa, then the next logical step is Jesus and Santa are both the same, and they both are a lie. Obviously, not every person that believes in Santa Claus as a child will deny Jesus when they get older. The truth is, the author of this article, Terry Watkins, is saying he believed in Santa Claus as a child, and he did not trust Jesus until he was about Uh, until he was 20 years old. And furthermore, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the lie and godlike attributes of Santa Claus influenced his early doubts and confusion about Jesus Christ. Someone once said, Jesus Christ is nothing but a Santa Claus for adults. That's it. That was his belief about Jesus Christ. Another Santa Claus, another lie. I have heard atheists say that word for word. They said, Jesus Christ is nothing but a Santa Claus for adults. Nothing but a fairy tale. It's it's a myth. He's a myth and all this type of stuff. Well, guess what? When you're teaching kids about Santa Claus, that it's just this lie that you tell them, then they get over, oh, by the way, I was telling you a lie the whole time. It was just fake. Well, you don't think that's going to you that's going to affect their view of what you teach them about Jesus Christ then you want to them to believe in him okay after kids grow up and find out that Santa Claus and the Easter bunny were lie were a lie do you think they're going to buy a Jewish carpenter who walked on water and rose from the dead no 
These smoke screens are making it harder for them to be saved. Okay, absolutely true. This is very important when it comes to how it affects the children. All right, let's continue. Satan targets children. Who really is this man we affectionately call Santa Claus? What do we really know about Santa? Is Santa just a jolly, harmless, friendly fellow? Or is there something or someone else hiding behind jolly old Saint Nick? Before we look at Santa, let us establish some basic Bible facts. The Bible clearly teaches a powerful, rebellious, subtle, evil being called the devil, Lucifer, or Satan. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him, Revelation 12, 9. Okay, he's talking about the devil. The Bible teaches that Satan rebelled against God. Satan rebelled because he desires to be like God. Satan's mission is to dethrone God and persuade mankind to rebel against God. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So what did Satan say? He said, I will be like the most high. I will be like God. That's what Satan wanted. And that's what he still wants to be worshiped as God. The Bible teaches Satan's primary attack is the most vulnerable. In Luke 10, 19, Jesus Christ compares Satan to lightning. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Lightning, like Satan, always travels the path of least resistance. The Bible also likens the devil to a roaring lion. The lion is a predator of opportunity. The lion looks for the injured, the youngest, the smallest, or the weakest. He, They trail right behind the, the pack of, you know, maybe some wildebeest or something. And that weak one that's trailing on the uh, at the back, they come and they grab him and snatch him out. The one with the least ability to run or fight. So it is with Satan. He is actively seeking those whom he may devour because Satan is a coward. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The German reformer Martin Luther. Now, I'm not, before anyone criticizes me, I don't endorse everything that Martin Luther taught. I think he taught heresy including infant baptism and all that trash okay so don't please don't try to put that on me okay i'm just quoting his quote martin luther writes in his table talks the devil plagues and torments us in the place where we are most tender and weak in paradise he fell not upon adam but upon eve now that specific statement he made is true uh, uh, the devil tempted eve okay and the bible says adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. She was deceived. The most vulnerable, at least resistance, are our children. It is no accident that the Lord Jesus Christ distinctively warned several times against harming or offending these little ones. Let's hear what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 18 about the little children. Starting in verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso, whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay? Jesus said it were better for you to have a millstone, which was a uh, very large stone that was used if it was the nether millstone for grinding uh, wheat, grain, stuff like that. And it would, if that was hanged about your neck and you were cast into the, the depth of the sea, not only would you drown, but you would sink so fast to uh, to the bottom of the ocean that the pressure uh, of the ocean would crush you, okay? So, and Jesus is saying that type of death is better for you than the punishment that you're in for if you uh, are into hurting children. You offend children, uh, you teach them something wrong, a lie to them, to make them not believe in Jesus Christ, that's first and foremost what it means. If you lead a child astray and lead them away from Jesus, your punishment's going to be bad. Uh, and also for those who physically uh, abuse and molest children, this is the punishment that you can look forward to because you're uh, wicked. Okay? So, the Lord Jesus invites and encourages little children to come to him. The younger years are by far the most spiritually fruitful in the life cycle of an individual. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, in a bit. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they brought young children to him and that he should teach them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 15, and they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise Enter in, okay. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about this too, okay? Um, because there's some misconceptions here about this stuff. Uh, without question, the most fertile time in the average person's life for receiving and trusting the Lord Jesus is in the preteen years. So just after, you know, they're a little child, right before they become a teenager. Any, so this is what Terry Watkins says. He talks about church workers, whatever. Anybody that's worked with children. Any church worker knows that young children are very receptive to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have all the hangups that the adults have, okay? Well, what about this and what about that? And they're not getting into philosophical arguments and stuff. It's just simple with the children, okay? For children, that childlike faith is natural. It is what the Lord Jesus described in Matthew ten fifteen. As we get older, the sensual, youthful lusts and logical carnal mind begin to dominate our lives. And as that happens, our heart becomes hardened and seared to the spiritual things of God. Okay, uh, let's continue a little bit more here. Barna Research Group published a survey conducted among teenagers titled Third Millennium Teens. Under the subtitle Displacing the Myths, the report said, 
The myth, the teen years are evangelistically productive. The reality, if they're not saved by age 13, they probably never will be. Okay, so that's what the study said. Does You know, anybody can get saved at any age, but it's just saying, you know, things become harder after they, they become teenagers and rebellious and all these other ungodly influences and things begin to get more complicated. The report goes on to say the data shows clearly that the prime evangelistic years are those before a person becomes a teenager. Uh, but after they're obviously able to distinguish b- between right and wrong, you know, children that are infants, one, two, three, you know, it, they, I know they brought infants to Jesus, but, you know, he prayed for them and blessed them. Doesn't mean they can get saved when they're infant. They can't even talk yet. Okay. So they got to be able to talk. They got to be able to, to think and know the difference between right and wrong. So, uh, I mean, I think under the age of, of five years old isn't even, that's just, that it's, it seems pretty ridiculous to me to, to say that a child that young can get saved because first of all, they haven't even barely lived. Uh, but they don't have an understanding of what sin is. But once they start to hit five years old, they do start to understand things a lot more. Five, six, seven, all the way up till the preteen years, till they're like 12 years old, between five and 12, they start to understand a lot more. Um, so if the most productive time of salvation are the preteen years, and if the preteen years are the most vulnerable, does it not stand to reason that Satan would fiercely attack this time? Can we not see the overwhelming evidence of this satanic attack on our children? So this is this tract is kind of this article is kind of outdated because he talks about the music of Britney Spears and NSYNC. <laughs> it's kind of old, so it's kind of outdated. What could we say today? Um, I don't know the 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 music of um, Katy Perry. She's a little bit newer. Taylor Swift, you know, uh, any anything today, hip hop. You know, Kanye West, whatever. I mean, there's newer stuff today. What's that guy? There's some rapper that some died that he just died. Um, Lil Peep. There you go. Um, all, you know, it doesn't matter what it is today. You know, it's all sensual, sexual, filled with witchcraft and stuff like that. It's it's a very corrupting influence. Uh, and then you got witchcraft books like Harry Potter, lots of other ones out there. And these are attacks aimed directly at children. These are chill books aimed at children. Music videos. A lot of music videos. Most of the people that are watching it are teenagers and 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 younger preteens. They're the ones watching it. Uh, it is assaulting them from the TV, the music, the internet, peer pressure, public schools. Satan literally seeks to devour our children in every into every nook and cranny, and that's true. Okay. It's an all-out assault today, okay? Everywhere you turn, all these influences, and uh, they're aimed at the young people, at the children. Why? Because this is the, the time they're the most vulnerable, the time they're the most easily influenced, okay? And that's why Satan targets them. And if you are not a diligent, vigilant parent, okay, and you're monitoring what they're watching, what they're listening to, who they're being influenced by, you're going to lose your children to the devil and to the world. It's going to happen, okay? Now, am I saying shelter your children from the world uh, in a basement somewhere and don't even let them go into the top front room of the house, which I knew someone who tried to do that and said their son wasn't allowed to go in the front room because he might see a woman uh, running down the street dressed immodestly. Okay, that's that's getting to be a bit extreme. Okay, that's pretty ridiculous. Okay, you can't shield them from everything. But what you can do 
is when they're under your roof, they're under your authority, okay? And you can control what they see, what they hear, what they listen to, and the gen- what they're entertained by, who they're influenced by, okay? And if you're sending your kids to public school as a Christian, you're not very smart because they're going to be bombarded with every ungodly thing imaginable, okay? And public schools weren't even a thing in the founding of America. The, the primary responsibility uh, of where education falls is on the parents, especially the mother, Okay, while the husband is out and uh, working, okay? It's a ministry of education in the home. That's where it's supposed to be. And, uh, and, and oh, well, what are they going to do? How are they going to socialize? They're going to be taught by their parents. They can hang out with other children, but they're going to learn from adults. And, uh, well, you know, I went to so, uh, public school. And you know what I learned about socializing? I learned about, uh, let's see here, fornication, drugs, drinking, and bullying and kids that were suicidal and depressed, kind of like I was. And uh, yeah, that socialization in the popularity contest and all this other trash. That's what I learned about socializing. It, it didn't, it, that doesn't teach you anything. That's stupid. You can teach a child if they're homeschooled how to talk to people and socialize and, and have to have a good time and they don't have to be raised like they're Amish, okay? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? But you need to protect your children from these wicked influences, okay? Because that's where Satan is targeting, the children, okay? There have been Christian parents who had children living in their house. These are Christians. They believe the Bible, and they taught, and they brought their kids to church. But meanwhile, the kids are in their bedroom listening to rock music and watching a bunch of trash on TV for hours and hours and hours. And then they go to public school. Which influence do you think is going to have the biggest impact on them? Not church and not their parents. Okay. You go to, like one preacher said, they're going to go to school five days a week, six hours a day, being indoctrinated with evolution and all this ungodly philosophy. They're going to come home and watch TV. And you think them coloring a picture of Noah's Ark on Sunday is going to fight against all that. You're out of your mind. Okay. It's ridiculous. You need to wake up. Take control, take responsibility, take authority, and do your job as a parent, okay? Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train them up in the way they should go, and then when they're old, they're not depart from it, okay? Uh, that, that's what the Bible says. And uh, you just really need to see the war that is out there of Satan coming after your children, okay? Because he's the most subtle beast of the field, and people will make jokes and all the devils after the children, ha ha. And you, and, and they act like we're being some crazy sensationalist, but this is a biblical reality. He comes as an angel of light and he targets the vulnerable. All right. Many parents have been lullabied to sleep with the deception that our children are innocently immune to the attack of Satan. Okay. Um, now, before I continue, okay, well, let's read this paragraph. There's a false security that believes our children will naturally grow out of it, or they're just sowing their wild oats, or maybe they're just being kids. But the Bible paints a much different picture, okay? Now, before I talk about this, we're going to talk about this uh, child, this guy who uh, started to be possessed when he was a child of a devil. Let's talk about children and salvation real quick, Okay. Not going to be in depth about this, but I talked about children getting saved. Okay. The Bible clearly teaches, um, hold on a second. Bible clearly teaches that 
babies who die go straight to heaven, okay? Um, David had a baby through his, uh, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, she had a baby, and then that baby died, and he said, um, he will not come unto me, but I will go unto him. He will see him again. He will see his baby in heaven. He knew the baby would go to heaven because the, the Bible talks about babies before they know right from wrong. It says they, they can't discern between their right hand and their left. That means they're at an age where they don't know the difference between right and wrong. They can't think, uh, they can't understand those things. Okay. Now there comes an age. Some have called it the age of accountability, but it's an age where they can understand truth and the differences between right and wrong. Okay. And this may be different for every child, a different age. Okay. But the Bible clearly, clearly talks about that. Now, having said that, uh, we don't, we know that, um, Infant baptism is wrong because baptism does not save, okay? It's repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, which saves. When you repent of your sin, turn from a life of sin, and turn to Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, his death, burial, and resurrection, his blood that he shed in the cross of Calvary, that he atoned for your sin, and that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be born again. Jesus said you must be born again. Being born again is supernaturally transformed into a new creature, into a new person. God gives you a new heart with new desires. You no longer desire to live a life of sin, but you desire to live for Christ, live for the word of God, and to pray, and to fellowship with the saints, and all these types of things, okay? So that's salvation. A baby can't do that, okay? A child can't do that. The requirement to be baptized is you have to believe and be saved first, then you can be baptized. And baptism always in the Bible was shown as immersion, being fully immersed in water and it, because it's a type of burial. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, being buried with him in baptism. Okay, You can't be buried with sprinkling or pouring water. It can only be buried in immersion. Okay, Now, so it has to be uh, the candidate for baptism has to be a saved person, someone who's believed put their faith in Jesus Christ which disqualifies a baby, okay? Um, and baptism does not save. It's an outward sign of the inward work that already happened. So why did I say that? Because of this. Uh, as far as children getting saved, they're not saved by the baptism. So they don't get saved until they can believe. Well, when is that? Well, like I said, at varying ages. Now, what I'm the reason I'm bringing this up is that this uh, misconception, okay? Some people teach this false notion and some people have testimonies. I have heard multiple testimonies like this and these testimonies are unbiblical, okay? They say that they got saved when they were a child and the age ranges. Some say when they were, I've heard some people say their child got saved when they were two, which is utterly ridiculous. But I've seen some pastors say that they got saved when they were four, you know, four, five, all the way up till nine years old, right? They say they got saved when they were a kid, okay? And they said they got a little older. They became a teenager and or a young adult, and they said that they, quote unquote, got away from the Lord. So they, what happened? They went out in the world. They started living a life of sin. They're drinking, they're fornicating, they're doing whatever. Even if they're not going crazy, they're living a life of sin. They're not reading the word of God, no desire for anything. And it happens for, and they go off for years. 
I've heard this multiple times, years and years and years. And then down the road, they say, well, God, you know, show me I was pride in pride and he brought me to repentance or whatever. He brought me back to him. And uh, then I came back to the Lord. I started going back to church and I started, you know, I returned back to him and he brought me back. And they, but they say, but I got saved when I was a kid. And uh, the problem with that is it's not biblical. Okay. It's not biblical at all. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, and it talks about people can backslide, but you can, you can't go out in the world, live in sin, not read the word of God and pray and live a Christian life for year and year after year after year with no chastening, no, no conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about you felt guilty because the Bible says worldly, there's worldly sorrow. Um, sorrow of the world worketh death. I'm talking about godly sorrow that worketh repentance and actual change of direction. Okay. Year after year after year. Sometimes 10, 20 years, these people have said, and then they say they came back to the Lord. No, you didn't come back to the Lord. Okay. Cause you were never saved. You were never saved, okay? And what's interesting is some of the pe- these people that I've met who came back to the Lord, after they came back, they put on a good show, they're going to church, they clean up their life, but it becomes apparent that they have bitterness and uh, deceit and hypocrisy still uh, burning within their heart. And that will eventually manifest itself. So, you can't fake it forever. Uh, Jesus said that uh, there are men out there who claim to be saved. They're whited sepulchers. On the outside, the outward appearance, they're, they're white and beautiful. And they look clean. They clean the outside of the cup of the platter. And everyone thinks, wow, they're really strict with their standards. And they're really holy. But inwardly, they're full of dead men's bones, of hypocrisy and iniquity and corruption. That's why it's important that we look for the fruit of the Spirit, not just, hey, I don't drink, smoke, and fornicate anymore. I don't curse, right? Some people say I don't uh, drink, smoke, and chew, and I don't go with those that do, right? So what? Neither do Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists. Um, there's many, they don't do any of those things. Does that mean they're saved? Nope. They're lost. It's the fruit of the spirit, my friends. And, uh, it's about proper doctrine and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a combination, but it's an inward work of the heart, which then works its way out. Uh, but before I move on here, it's primarily, you'll see the difference in these whited sepulchers, what's the difference between the whited sepulcher and an actual born-again Christian? I'll tell you, it's one thing. The attitude. You watch for the difference in the attitude. The whited sepulcher is a Pharisee. And his attitude is he's self-righteous. He only wants to condemn all those that are not exactly like him and outside of his circle. And his attitude is to look down on everyone and and tell and say everyone that's not like him is a wicked devil, Jezebel, evil witch, and every other wicked thing that they can think of, and that's what they call them, and they have a really nasty attitude. But the true born again Christian does have standards, 
and some of these standards could be pretty strict and um, in, in the eyes of some, but their attitude is one of charity and they'll stand strong for the faith and they'll contend for the faith and sometimes they'll rebuke if they need to, but generally speaking, their attitude is one of grace with charity and and combined with boldness, okay? It's a much different attitude. And that's the difference, okay? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, we're talking about the difference in salvation, someone saying they got saved when they were a kid and growing up, what's the difference? And also when it comes to topics like this, you know, uh, that we don't have a pharisaical, self-righteous attitude towards people and, and, and just treat them like they're the devil incarnate if they, you know, taught, if they teach their kids about Santa Claus or something. You know, I think it's bad. I think it's something that you shouldn't do. And I especially think that it's even worse if you listen to this teaching and then you still do it and you still try to justify it. But uh, generally speaking, the attitude should be one of grace and charity. And there you go. All right. But anyways, the point is, is that yes, children can be more receptive to the gospel. But you got to be very careful, um, especially the really young ones. But you know, once you get older, over the age of five, six, and seven, you get up to between seven and 12 years old, they are very receptive to it. But what we watch for is, does the seed, has the seed been planted on good ground so that it produces fruit? Or is it as soon as they turn into a teenager, or as soon as they leave the house, they're like, yeah, let's go live in wickedness in the world. Okay. That's not salvation. That was just putting on a show, putting on a front until they were out on their own and they could do whatever they want. Okay. All right. I know that was kind of a rabbit trail, but it was necessary. All right. Let's continue here. So let's go to Mark. Uh, Mark chapter nine. God details a frightening occurrence. A man brings his spirit possessed devil possessed son to the lord jesus okay mark chapter 9 starting verse 17 and one of the multitude answered and said master i have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit and wheresoever he taketh him he teareth him and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away and i spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not he answereth him and said saith o faithless generation how long shall i be with you how long shall i suffer you Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. Of a child. Since he was a child, he had this devil. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou, deaf, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead. Insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was come into the house, 
His disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? And he said unto him, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Okay? It is interesting. The apostles could not cast out this kind. Jesus said, This kind come and come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. What kind of possession was it? What was different about this possession? I believe the answer is found in the only question the Lord Jesus asked. Jesus asked the man, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the man answered, of a child. These hard to cast out kind are those that enter in a child. Is it because the possession reaches so deep and so strong that they're almost impossible to remove? It's uh, very hard. Now, you might say, well, how could a... um, devil enter into a child now do you do i believe i don't believe the bible teaches okay that a devil can just randomly enter into a child boom they're in a child and that's it just whenever they want hey here's i'm in a child a devil goes into a child i don't believe that i believe there always has to be an open door for a devil to come in now this child or the family doesn't necessarily need to be practicing witchcraft one of the biggest open doors is uh trauma abuse and a bitterness okay if someone is bitter and angry at god and um they blame god for things that is a huge open door for a devil the devil to come in um the bible talks about that in um when it says that um neither give place to the devil it's talking about forgiveness when you have unforgiveness you have bitterness and you're giving place to the devil very clearly the bible teaches that and uh, sometimes this can happen to children maybe they were abused maybe something happened to them and they blame god when then that that um devil can come to them and they can be open to that spirit maybe they want uh power because they felt helpless of being abused and they the devil came into them and then it stayed with them and they enjoyed having that for that whole time except for obviously when things went out of control and it tried to kill him and put him in the fire and the water and then they're a prisoner but the only way that they could be set free is through the power of the lord jesus christ and um so that's just a little bit about that about uh devils coming to the children now the point is is it's possible and uh, the devil can go after the children. It is interesting. The apostles could not cast out this kind. Okay, we already read that. Now, in Proverbs 22, 6, the Bible explains the lifelong fruits of training a young child in the way he should go. That early training is so strong and so deep, as that child grows and matures, they will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. But the flip side is, if that same child is trained in the ways of Satan in the world, chances are that child will not depart from it. George Harrison, a devout follower of the Hindu god Krishna, understood this lifelong influence. Harrison told Rolling Stone magazine, the main thing is to get the kids. Nail you when you're young, brainwash you, they've got, then they've got you for the rest of your life. Okay, George Harrison from the Beatles He said the main thing is to get the kids. And what is he talking about? He's talking about getting the kids with the message of their music. Okay, and they're portraying it as good. We're going to reach the kids with our music, but the message is not good. Okay. It has been stated the foundation of a child is shaped from the time that child is five years old, maybe sooner. 
it doesn't mean they can never be changed if they're once they're five years old. It's just, you know, it's the foundation. Without question, the early preteen or Santa Claus years are some of the most important in a person's lifelong development. It has been truthfully said, the hand that rocks the cradle controls the world. And believe me, Satan knows this. That brings us to Santa. Where does Santa Claus fit in the life of a young child? What about the teaching of Santa Claus in the psyche of the child? I don't like using that word, the psyche. Uh, You know, let's say the mind. What about the teaching of the Santa Claus in the mind of a child? Is there more to jolly old Saint Nick than meets the eye? Is Santa a clever, seemingly harmless, subtle attempt to question the truthfulness of God? Is Santa the handiwork of Satan? Let's see. Remember the harmless question, the subtle serpent asks Eve in the garden? Yea, hath God said? Did God really say that? So slight, so simple, and yet so deadly. Not only that, but Satan's attack is not necessarily evil or bad. In fact, it can be good or even pleasant. That's how it comes across. The subtle temptation of Genesis reveals Satan's clever, good, and pleasant message. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Uh, By the way, I just... Okay, hold on. Let's continue here. And as Eve saw the forbidden fruit, it was good and it was pleasant, and yet it was deadly. All right. uh, What I was thinking about is that I forgot to say the beginning of the show. If you haven't watched my uh, the show on Christmas, please go back and watch that in case you're uh still wondering about Christmas as a whole, you know, kind of continuing on the theme of Christmas and the holidays right now. So you want to go back there, you get the full biblical perspective of of Christmas and the holiday season. Okay. This is just specifically focusing on Santa Claus. Okay. All right. The devil is a master of disguise. He can make it appear good, pleasant, and seemingly so innocent, and yet it is deadly. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no marvel For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That's what we've been saying. He does not appear with the horns and a pitchfork, breathing fire. He might just appear as a pleasant, friendly fellow with a broad face and a round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl of jelly. (laughs) Bowl full of jelly. Yeah, okay. I think that's one of those Santa Claus songs. I don't know. I I can't remember. Could Santa Claus be a subtle, clever... By the way, I grew up celebrating Christmas in case everyone knows... Anyone was wondering, could Santa Claus be a subtle, clever attack on our children to confuse, doubt, and rob their God-ordained childlike faith? Satan knows if he can somehow get that child through those fruitful early years without trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, his goal of eternal damnation in hell increases substantially. Let us take a look at Santa. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. All right, let's get into the origin of Santa Claus. First, the Bible says, 1 John 2.18, Little children, it is the last time. And as if you have heard, as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby ye know that it is the last time. Where did Santa Claus come from? The oft-repeated tale of Santa Claus goes like this. According to legend, Santa began as a 4th century Catholic bishop named St. Nicholas. 
The cult of St. Nicholas was one of history's most widespread religious movements. According to St. Nicholas historian Charles W. Jones, the cult of St. Nicholas was, before the Reformation, the most intensive of any non-biblical saint in Christendom. There were 2,137 ecclesiastical dedications, which were churches, to Nicholas in France, Germany, and the Low Countries alone before the year 1500. That's a lot of churches all dedicated to St. Nick. All right, and you can look at the sources here. I'll post the notes later on the, on the description. The popular book, The Christmas Almanac, states, by the height of the Middle Ages, St. Nicholas was probably invoked in prayer more than any other figure except the Virgin Mary and Christ himself. Well, isn't that nice? Uh, does anyone see praying to the Virgin Mary in the Bible? Nope, because I don't. Miraculous folklore and legends surround the mysterious, or any other dead saint, by the way. Miraculous folklore and legend surround the mysterious Saint Nicholas. Among the more popular legends is saint, of Saint Nicholas is the rescue of three poverty-stricken girls destined for prostitution. These girls were poor and did not have the dowry for marriage. Saint Nicholas saved them from a life of shame by providing marriage dowries of gold. They then were all able to get properly married. Another amazing miracle in the life of St. Nicholas is the three young boys who were sadistically murdered by a wicked innkeeper. Their bodies were chopped up and preserved in pickle barrels with the cannibalistic intent of feeding their flesh to unsuspecting house guests. Of course, the amazing St. Nicholas resurrected the boys in their mutilated bodies. And like Santa, St. Nicholas gave gifts to poor children, hence his veneration as patron saint of children. During the Middle Ages, hundreds of plays and paintings told and retold the amazing feats of St. Nicholas. Okay? Uh, obviously, that is some ridiculous legends that they told about this guy saying he resurrected these boys. Okay? The Catholic Church always makes up these miracles that their saints do so they can be categorized as a saint. Okay? Next, according to legend, uh, Santa, by the way... the you know, obviously there's a huge connection here between Santa Claus and the Catholic Church and then also Santa Claus and paganism. We always have paganism connected to the Catholic Church. And I love when people say that paganism, they act like paganism is no big deal. Like I said in the last show, paganism is idolatry, worship of false gods, witchcraft. It's not something you're supposed to be associated with. The Bible says, learn not the way of the heathen. And yet people act like, well, it's pagan. Who cares about it has pagan roots? We're going to use it anyway. Okay. Well, you obviously you don't care what God says. Next, according to legend, Santa magically appears in the Netherlands around the 17th century. During this time, Sinterklaas, also known as Santa Claus, was officially born. Dutch children began the tradition of placing their shoes by the fireplace on December 5th for the mystic 4th century bishop, St. Nicholas. Note, in the Dutch language, St. Nicholas is Sint Nicolaas, which was shortened to Sinterklaas, of which the anglicized form is Santa Claus. So that's how you get Santa Claus. The next morning, the gleeful Dutch uh, children quickly awoke to gifts and goodies in their shoes left by Sinterklaas. Like today's Santa, Sinterklaas miraculously traveled from housetop to housetop and entered through the chimney. Now, my question is, what did he do if they didn't have a chimney? 
Well, he must have had to come in through the back door. Our next stop on the Santa Highway is the year 1626 in the New World called America. Searching for the American dream, Dutch settlers sailed from the Netherlands and established the Dutch colony called New Amsterdam, today called New York. The Dutch colonists quickly settled into America, bringing their customs and, of course, their beloved Sinterklaas. In December 1809, American essayist Washington Irving published a popular satire of the Dutch founding of New York titled A Knickerbocker Story, uh, History of New York. More than any other event, it was Irving's Knickerbocker's history that is credited for creating our modern-day Santa Claus. The following history-making words from the Knickerbocker history became the public inauguration of Santa Claus. Who could have possibly imagined the significance these simple words would soon have? Here's a quote from his story. And the sage Olaf dreamed a dream, and lo, the good St. Nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees in that selfsame wagon wherein he brings his yearly presents to the children. And when St. Nicholas had smoked his pipe, he twisted it in his hat band and laying his finger beside his nose, gave the astonished Van Cortland a very significant look. Then mounting his wagon, he returned over the treetops and disappeared. All right. So that's, that's what sparked a lot of this in, in America about Santa Claus. At this early period was instituted that pious ceremony still religiously observed in all our ancient families of the right breed of hanging up a stocking in the chimney on St. Nicholas Eve, which stocking is always found in the morning miraculously filled. Uh, it's not much of a miracle if your parents just stuff it with candy and uh, chocolate coins covered in tinfoil. Okay, it's not a miracle. For the good St. Nicholas has ever been a great giver of gifts, particularly to children. Okay. So you can see now originally they celebrated this festival. Um, they celebrated the Santa Claus thing. It was December 5th, but then he became associated with Christmas, December 25th. And they started to become meshed and associated with each other. So then they put together the stockings and the Christmas tree and the whole thing just got all mushed together. Okay. And uh, move on over Jesus, because here comes Santa Claus. That's what happened. Next stop on our investigative journey for Santa surprisingly comes from the pen of a New York theology professor named Dr. Clement Clark Moore. In 1822, inspired by Irving's popular Knickerbocker History's portrayal of Jolly St. Nicholas, Dr. Moore quietly wrote a trivial poem titled A Visit from St. Nicholas for his own children as a simple Christmas present. Dr. Moore had no intention of publishing his poem but in 1823 it was published anonymously by a friend in the troy sentinel moore's extremely popular poem was the spark that lit the santa claus wildfire santa quickly began flying through america dr moore's poem was later renamed the famous twas the night before christmas so that was a huge uh that poem was very big in the spread of the uh, santa claus mythology and custom and nostalgia in America. The finishing touches for Santa occurred around 1863 from the artistic hands of cartoonist Thomas Nast. Inspired by Moore's popular poem, Nast illustrated scores of Santa pictures in Harper's Weekly, and the world was officially baptized with the face of Santa Claus. Nast's early Santa was burly, stern, gnome-like, and covered with drab fur. 
much unlike today's colorful jolly fellow. But make no mistake, it was Santa. And don't worry, we're going to get more into the pagan and Catholic history of all this stuff. But let us let us investigate the traditional Santa story a little closer, because you because now you kind of have like a quick rundown of how it came from Europe, uh, from the Dutch to America, how it spread throughout America and came to us today. And you can also thank Coca-Cola for helping that along, you know. But uh, let's look into this a little bit more about where who Santa Claus really is. The mysterious Saint Nicholas. The first major problem in the Santa Claus saga is the person of Saint Nicholas. There is very little evidence, if any, that the man Saint Nicholas actually is existed. Okay, I've heard tons of stories of people talk about Saint Nicholas. I've heard people say, "Oh yeah, Saint Nicholas uh, punched Arius, the heretic, in the face, and all this other stuff." Well, let's look at the the facts. Okay, Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, 1999 says this Nicholas existence is not attested by any historical document none so nothing certain is known of his life except that he was probably bishop of Myra in uh, the 4th century that's what people say he was bishop of Myra in the 4th century but we don't have historical documents proving it here's another entrance uh, entrance Microsoft and Carta Encyclopedia St. Nicholas Christian prelate, patron son, saint of Russia, traditionally associated with Christmas celebrations. The accounts of his life are confused and historically unconfirmed. Okay, so what is it mostly? Legends, mythology, hearsay, rumors made up by the Catholic Church mostly. Unfortunately, very little is known about the real Saint Nicholas. Countless legends have grown up around this very popular saint, but very little historical evidence is available. Okay, the Christmas Almanac. In 1969, the final nail in the coffin to the feeble fable of St. Nicholas was officially hammered down. Despite the fact St. Nicholas is among Roman Catholicism's most popular and venerated saints, uh, and by venerated, I mean worshipped, Pope Paul VI officially decreed the Feast of St. Nicholas removed from the Roman Catholic calendar. Uh, UPI Wire Services reported that St. Nicholas and 40 other saints were deleted because of doubt that they ever existed. Okay, so look at that. That was from an article. St. Nicholas Center, you can see that Pope marches 40 saints off official church calendar. So they actually deleted St. Nicholas off the Roman Catholic calendar because there's no evidence he even existed. Because the saint's life is so unreliably documented, Pope Paul VI ordered the Feast of St. Nicholas dropped from the official Roman Catholic calendar in 1969. The next devastating error in the traditional Santa comes to America legend is Irving's Knickerbocker history. Irving claims the early Dutch planted the legend of Sinterklaas in America. One little problem. It is historically false. In fact, Irving, a well-known fiction author of such classics as Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, never intended Knickerbocker history as historical fact, but silly satire. To heighten the satire and humorous effect, Irving even used the comical pen name of Diedrich Knickerbocker as author. Okay, so so we, we told you, I showed you the official history of how they say Santa Claus came here, but this is the real story, the documented facts of what the truth is, okay? In October 
1954, prominent St. Nicholas historian Charles W. Jones published an irrefutable dismantling of the historical accuracy of Irving's Knickerbocker history in the prestigious The New York Historical Society Quarterly, titled Knickerbocker Santa Claus. Jones proved the early New Amsterdam Dutch were Reformation Dutch who believed the veneration of saints as evil heresy, especially St. Nicholas. So those Reformed Dutch wouldn't have done that. Jones provided first-hand documents of the early Dutch that decrees very severe laws prohibiting any celebration of St. Nicholas. Jones added that there is no record of anyone breaking such laws. Jones' convincing analysis should be carefully examined by anyone researching the true origin of Santa. Okay, so these Reformed Dutch people, they wouldn't have celebrated, they wouldn't have venerated St. Nicholas, they wouldn't have brought him to here. Okay, the following, so Irving did it as satire. The following uh, brief sites are from Jones' convincing work. He said this, Nearly everyone repeats this story. The Dutch brought the Santa here. But when we look at the evidence, that is newspapers, magazines, diaries, books, broadsides, music, sculpture, merchandise of pastimes, the picture is not substantiated. Once again, he says, There is no evidence that Santa Claus existed in New Amsterdam or for a century after occupation. Another quote, I have not found evidence of St. Nicholas in any form in juveniles or periodicals or diaries in the period of Dutch rule or straight through 17th and 18th centuries to the year 1773. Jones also adds insult to injury. The traditional tale that Santa Claus is the anglicized corruption of the Dutch Santa Claus is also incorrect. Jones states, and by the way, Santa Claus is not characteristically a Dutch corruption. The place it has survived from early times in Switzerland in southern Germany. When examined with historical facts, the oft-repeated history of Santa is so full of gross errors it ranks among history's greatest goofs. The final death blow to the traditional tale of Santa Claus is the belief that Santa Claus is actually the mystic bishop St. Nicholas. We previously established that no historical evidence exists collaborating the person of St. Nicholas but ignoring that serious blunder for a few minutes, let us investigate the fable that Santa and St. Nicholas are the same. The truth is there exists no factual connection from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus, none. Every researcher, serious researcher into the origin of Santa Claus verifies this fact. A few examples, among hundreds, validates our ironclad case. Here's one from Phyllis Siefker. Years of research confirmed that initial doubt. Santa Claus is the Americanization, all right, but not of a Catholic saint. Despite a century of repetition, the story is simply untrue. From the book Last of the Wild Men, The Origins and Evolution of St. Nicholas. Here's another one from uh, Handbook of Christian Feast and Custom. The dilemma was solved by transferring the visit of the mysterious man whom the Dutch called Santa Claus from December 5th to Christmas. And by introducing a radical change in the figure itself, it was not merely a disguise, but the ancient saint was completely replaced by an entirely different character with the Christian saint whose name he still bears. However, this Santa Claus has really nothing to do. Here's another one. If, although the Dutch brought Santa Claus with them to the new world in the 7th century, Santa Claus was not born until the 19th century and was an American, not a Dutch creation. If Nicholas, the ascetic bishop of the 4th century Asia Minor, could see Santa Claus, he would not know who he was. 
from the Christmas Almanac. And another quote here, another serious obstacle in the St. Nicholas is is Santa Claus legend involves the date of December 25th. The feast and visit of St. Nicholas is celebrated on December 6th, the fictional date of his death, but not December 25th. Even today, St. Nicholas Day and Sinterklaas are still celebrated on December 6th. The date of St. Nicholas Day has never been December 25th. Despite the many times the Santa legend is told, the magical St. Nicholas to Santa Claus fairy tale is simply untrue, okay? There's no evidence. So we we, we talked about how there's no evidence that St. Nicholas even existed. But let's say he did. There's no evidence even beyond that connecting Santa Claus to St. Nicholas. Okay, there you go. Boom, clear as day. No connection between Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. And the reason that we've established that fact is for the next question. Where did Santa come from? Who is he really? Nearly all Santa researchers agree that some traits of Santa were borrowed from Norse mythology. Encyclopedia Britannica describes the role of Nordic mythology in the life of Santa. Santa Claus was adopted by the country's English-speaking majority under the name Santa Claus, and his legend of a kindly old man was united with old Nordic folk tales of a magician who punished naughty children and rewarded good children with presents. Some Santa researchers associate Santa with the Norse god of Odin, also known as Woden. Okay? The false god, by the way, the idol, the false god of Odin. That's right. Crichton describes Odin as riding through the sky as on an eight-legged white horse named Sleipner. Santa originally had eight reindeers. Rudolph was nine. Odin lived in Valhalla, which was the north, and had a long white beard. Sound familiar? That's Odin. Odin would fly through the sky during the winter solstice. You know, around December 25th to 20, uh, 21st to 25th, rewarding the good children and punishing the naughty. There you go. That's Odin. Sounds a lot like Santa Claus. Mythologist Helene Adel- Adeline Gerber presents a very convincing case tracing Santa to the Norse god Thor in myths of northern lands. Thor was the god of the peasants and the common people. He was represented as an elderly man, jovial and friendly, of heavy build, with a long white beard. His element was the fire, his color red. The rumble and roar of thunder were said to be caused by the rolling of his chariot. For he alone among the gods never rode on horseback, but drove in a chariot drawn by two white goats, called Cracker and Nasher. He was fighting the giants of ice and snow, and thus became the Yule God. By the way, the witchcraft Sabbat today is called, in December, is called Yule Tide. He was said to live in the Northland, where he had his palace among icebergs. By our pagan forefathers, he was considered as the cheerful and friendly God, never harming the humans, but rather helping and protecting them. The fireplace in every home was especially sacred to him, and he was said to come down through the chimney into his element, the fire. Who was that? Thor. Okay? So Thor flies around, comes in through the chimney, and there you go. Who does that sound like? Santa Claus. All right, let's continue here. The unusual and common characteristics of any, you know, let's just continue. The unusual and common characteristics of Santa and Thor are too close to ignore. An elderly, jovial man, friendly, heavy bill with a long white beard, 
color red, element fire, the chariot, the Yule God. He was in the he lived in the north. Benevolent to all humans, the fireplace came down through the chimney. Even today in Sweden, Thor represents Santa Claus. Even today, the book, The Story of the Christmas Symbols, records this. Swedish children wait eagerly for Jutolmenten, a gnome whose sleigh is drawn by the Julbacher, the goats of the thunder god Thor. With his red suit and cap and a bulging sack on his back, he looks much like the American Santa Claus. Looks just like Santa Claus, but he's Thor. Thor was probably history's most celebrated and worshipped pagan god. His widespread influence particularly is particularly obvious in the fifth day of the week, which is named after him, Thursday, a.k.a. Thor's Day. It is ironic that Thor's symbol was a hammer. A hammer is also the symbolic tool of the carpenter, Santa Claus. It is also worth mentioning that Thor's helpers were elves, and like Santa's elves, Thor's elves were skilled craftsmen. It was the elves who created Thor's magic hammer. In the Handbook of Christian Feasts and Customs, author Francis Weiser traces the origin of Santa to Thor. Behind this name, Santa Claus actually stands the figure of the pagan Germanic god Thor, false god. What did the Bible say in the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. No other gods, no idols, no Thor. It's a false god, a pagan god, a heathen god, idolatry. After listing some the common attributes of Thor and Santa, Weiser concludes, Here, Thor then is the true origin of our Santa Claus, with the Christian saint whose name he still bears. However, this Santa Claus has really nothing to do. Another interesting trait of Thor is recorded by H.R. Ellis Davidson in Scandinavian mythology. It was Thor who in the last days of heathenism was regarded as the chief antagonist of Christ. Ooh, wow, that's pretty bad. In case you were not aware, an antagonist is an enemy, adversary, or replacement. So, in the last days of heathenism, Thor was regarded as an antagonist of Christ, the enemy of Christ. The bizarre and mutual attributes of Thor and Santa are no accident. This is who Santa Claus is based off of. Pagan gods like Thor and Odin. Okay? And they kind of, they take some from here, some from there, and they create this new false god of Santa Claus. And then you teach it to your children. All right? So, next we're going to look at Krampus. All right? Who is Krampus? Well, Krampus is very important to our story about Santa Claus here, okay? When it comes to the story of Santa Claus, you need to learn about who Krampus is. Now, many of you may have heard of who Krampus is, and some of you may have never heard of Krampus, and you're like, what? A Kramp what? A Krampus? Krampus was Santa's little helper. He's not so little. He is Santa's helper, okay? And this tradition still goes on today, and they have parades in Europe, and even in America, they have Krampus all dressed up walking down the street still in um practice today and i'm going to show you a video clip of that so you can see for yourself right now i'm going to take a quick break and uh we'll be right back we're back 
so let's get back into talking about Krampus. Krampus. So, while the pagan brushstrokes of North mythology has painted some of the traits of Santa Claus, there exists another brushstroke coloring Santa that bids our inspection. There is a little-known piece in the life of Santa that time and tradition has silently erased. Few people are aware that for most of his life, St. Nicholas, Claus, etc. had an unusual helper or companion. This mysterious sidekick had many names or aliases. He was known as Necht Ruprecht, Palesnickel, Ruklas, Swarthy, Dark One, Dark Helper, Black Peter, Hanstrap, Krampus, Grampus, Zwarte Piets, Furry Nicholas, Rough Nicholas, Schimmelreiter, Klapperbach, and Jewelbuch, and a bunch of other names. Though his name changed, he was always there. Some other well-known titles given to St. Nick's bizarre companion is a demon, evil one, the devil, and Satan. One of his dark duties was to punish children and gleefully drag them to hell. This is part of the story, folks, and you can't separate Santa Claus from Krampus. Can't do it. It's always been there. The following references are provided to demonstrate that the devil who accompanies St. Nicholas is a well-documented fact. In every forerunner of Santa, this dark and diabolic character appears. Quote, it is the Christ kind who brings the presence accompanied by one of its many devilish companions, Necht Ruprecht Pelsnickel Ruklaus, Krampus. Here's another one from the Christmas Almanac. In many areas of Germany, Hans Trapp is the demon who accompanies Christkind on his gift-giving year round. So Christkind was one of the names of, uh, Christkind was the name of uh, Santa Claus. Another Christmas demon from Lower Austria, Krampus or Grampus, accompanies St. Nicholas on December 6th. Once again, from the Christmas Almanac. And then when Santa was a shaman, uh, it says this, like Santa, Sinterklaas and the Dark Helper were also supposed to have the peculiar habit of entering homes through the chimney. Here's another one. In Sarajevo and Bosnia, St. Nicholas appears with gifts for the children in spite of the war and shelling. He is assisted by a small black devil who scares the children. Doesn't that sound nice? Uh, here's another one. Ruprecht. Here, plays the part of a boogeyman, a black, hairy, horned, cannibalistic, stick-carrying nightmare. His role and character of unmitigated evil, the ultimate horror that could befall children who had been remiss in learning their prayers and doing their lessons. He was hell on earth. In Holland, Sinterklaas, Santa Claus, wore a red robe while riding a white horse and carried a bag of gifts to fill the children's stockings. A sinister assistant called Black Pete proceeded Santa Claus in the Holland tradition to seek out the naughty boys and girls who would not receive gifts from the history of Santa Claus. The Christian figure from uh, Microsoft and Carta Encyclopedia, the Christian figure of St. Nicholas replaced or incorporated various pagan gift-giving figures, such as the Roman Bifana and Germanic Berkta Necht Ruprecht. He was depicted as wearing a bishop's robes and was said to be accompanied at times by Black Peter an elf whose job was to whip the naughty children. Christmas historian Miles Clement relates that no satisfactory account has yet been given to the origins of these demons and devils that appear with St. Nicholas. It can hardly be said that any satisfactory account has been has yet been given to of the origins of this personage or of the relation of his relation to St. Nicholas, Pelsmarte, and the monstrous creatures like the Clapperbach. 
All right, so where did this Krampus come from? Well, let's find out more on the origin of Krampus. In a brief article discussing the figure published in 1958, Maurice Bruce wrote, There seems to be little doubt as to his true identity. For in no other form is the full regalia of the horned god of the witches so well preserved. The birch, apart from its phallic significance, may have a connection with the initiation rites of certain witch covens, rites which entailed binding and scourging as a form of mock death. The chains could have been introduced in a Christian attempt to bind the devil, but again, they could be a remnant of pagan initiation rites. rites. So, pagan, they said, I'm sorry, pagan, uh, Krampus took on, is the form in the full regalia of the horned god of the witches. Here's another fact. Krampus, whose name is derived from the German word Krampen, which means claw, is said to be the son of Hel, H-E-L, who rules the realm of the dead in Norse mythology. All right, so let's look at that. Who's Hel? In Norse mythology, Hel is the ruler of Heilheim, the realm of the dead. She is the youngest child of the evil god Loki, and we'll look at that in a second and the giantess Angraboda. She's usually described as a horrible hag, half alive, half dead. The gloomy and grim expression, expression her face and body are those of a living woman, but legs of a corpse. Okay. Um, yeah, who cares? We don't need to read all that. Okay, so that's that. And then Loki. Who is Loki? Loki is one of the major deities in the Norse pantheon. He is the, a son of the giant. Interesting fact there. A son of a giant. Farbati which means cruel striker, and the giantess, Laufi. He is regarded as one of Acer, but is on occasion their enemy. He is connected with fire and magic and consume many different shapes, horse, falcon, fly, crafty and malicious. Okay, and he can also be compared with the trickster from North American myths. That's pretty important. Uh, all right, so we don't need to read all that, this mythology. Uh, okay, let's see here. cares um on the day of ragnarok loki's chains will break and he will lead the giants into battle against the gods <laughs> he's loki is called the sly one the trickster the shape changer and the sky traveler okay so anyways the, what was the story that krampus is the son of hell and hell was the child of loki all right so there you go all right the real so these are all norse false gods that's the point okay so Krampus, another Norse false god. The real identity of Santa Claus. Previously, we established the peculiar fact that today's Santa Claus and St. Nicholas are not the same. They never have been. Santa Claus is dressed in a long, shaggy beard, furs, short, burly, and obese. The legends of St. Nicholas portrayed him as thin, tall, neatly dressed man in religious apparel. You cannot be possibly find two different characters. If Nicholas, the ascetic bishop of 4th century Asia Minor, could see Santa Claus, he would not know who he was. Okay? We know he's not the same. Here's the startling fact. Santa Claus is not the bishop of St. Nicholas, but his dark helper. Okay? So this is the whole point of the teaching is to prove that Santa Claus is not St. Nicholas, but Santa Claus is actually Krampus. Okay? That, that they're one and the same. Okay, so let's, let's, let's uh, see the evidence for that. In certain German children's games, the St. Nicholas figure itself is the Dark Helper, a devil 
who wants to punish children, but is stopped from doing so by Christ. Wow. Here's another one. Black Pete, the grandfather of our modern Santa Claus, known in Holland as Warte Pyatt, the 8th century German virgin, is like his ancient shamanic ancestor, still horned, fur-clad, scary, and less than kind to children. Although portrayed as the slave helper of St. Nicholas, the two are, in many villages, blended into one character. This figure often has the name Nicholas or Klaus, but has the swarthy appearance of the Dark Helper. Artist Thomas Nass is rightfully credited for conceiving the image of our modern-day Santa, but Nass' model for Santa was not the Bishop St. Nicholas, but his dark companion, the evil Pelsnickel. The Christmas demon Necht Ruprecht first appeared in a play in 1668 and was condemned by the Roman Catholic as being a devil in 1680. To the Pennsylvania Dutch, he is known as Belsnickel. Other names for the character are Pelsnickel, Furry Nicholas, Ruklaus, Rough Nicholas. From these names, it is easy to see that he is looked upon not as not merely a companion of St. Nicholas, but almost another version of him. In Thomas Nast, his period in his pictures, biographer Albert Bigelow Payne documents that Nast Santa was Pelsnickel. Uh, but on Christmas Eve, to Protestant and Catholic alike came the German Santa Claus, Pelsnickel, leading a child dressed as the Christ kind and distributing toys and cakes or switches, according as the parents made report. And it was Pell's Nickel, a fat, fur-clad, bearded old fellow at whose hands he doubtless received many benefits that the boy in later years was to present to us as his conception of the true Santa Claus, a pictorial type which shall alone endure. There you go. Santa historian and author Tony Van Rentersgem also documents Nas Santa Claus was not St. Nicholas, but the evil black Pete the Devil. Thomas Noss was assigned to draw this Santa Claus, but having no idea what he looked like, drew him as a fur-clad, small, troll-like figure he had known in Bavaria when he was a child. This figure was quite unlike the tall Dutch Sinterklaas, who was traditionally depicted as a Catholic bishop. Who he drew was St. Nicholas's dark helper, Swarthy, or Black Pete, a slang name for the devil in medieval Dutch. Santa researcher Phyllis Seifker echoes Rentergram's conclusion. Uh, so once again, he says, seems obvious, therefore, that Santa Claus can neither be the alter ego of St. Nicholas nor the brainchild of Washington Irving. If we peek behind the imposing St. Nicholas, we see glowering in the shadows the saint's reprobate companion, Black Pete. He, like Santa, has a coat of hair, a disheveled beard, a bag, and ashes on his face. In fact, it is this creature, rather than Irving's creation or Asian saint, who fathered Santa Claus. It is Santa Claus came from Krampus. Santa Claus is Krampus, the black devil. By the way, St. Nicholas did not come down the chimney. It was his fur-clad dark companion that came down the chimney. One of the reasons his psychic was called the Dark One or Black Peter was because he was normally covered in soot and ashes from his chimney travels. You go up and down a chimney, you're going to become black. The Dark Companion also carried the bag, distributed the goodies, and punished the bad boys and girls. Children in Holland are told that Black Peter enters the house through the chimney, which also explained with his black face and hands, and would leave a bundle of sticks or a small bag with salt in the shoe instead of candy when the child has been bad. 
It is significant that Black Peter, Pelsnickel, Neck Rupert, and all St. Nicholas companions are openly identified as the devil. Okay? So Black, who is Black Peter? Who is Krampus? It's the devil. That's who it is. Okay? Do you see the progression we're making here? Santa Claus is not St. Nicholas. Santa Claus is Krampus. And who is Krampus? He's based on all these pagan gods. Thor. Uh, Thor and uh, Odin. But what is that? What is he really? He is the devil. To the medieval Dutch, Black Peter was another name for the devil. Somewhere along the way, he was subdued by St. Nicholas and forced to be his servant. Here's another quote. Thus, in parts of Europe, the church named Herney into St. Nicholas's captive, chained Dark Helper, none other than Satan, the Dark One, symbolic of all evil. Okay? One of the bizarre jobs of St. Nick's devilish helper was to gleefully drag sinners to hell. Who does that sound like? The devil. On the eve of December 6th, the myth told that this bearded, white-haired old saint clad in a white mantle rode through the skies on a white horse together with his slave, the swarthy Dark Helper. This reluctant helper had to disperse gifts to good people, but much preferred to threaten them with his broom-like scourge and at a sign of his master would gleefully drag sinners away to a place of eternal suffering. Wow. He would drag them to hell. Who does that sound like? It is also alarming that Santa's popular title, Nick, is also a common name for the devil. You know, you hear people say old Saint Nick, right? Old Nick. Well, guess what? Let's look at these definitions here. Old Nick from uh, Encyclopedia of Occultism and Parapsychology. Old Nick, a well-known British name of the devil. It seems probable that this name is derived from the Dutch Nikon, Nikon the Devil. Here's another one from Concise Dictionary of English Etymology. Nick the Devil. Here's another one. Oxford English Dictionary. Oxford English Dictionary. Besides the under the word devil. Besides the name Satan, he is also called Beelzebub, Lucifer, and in popular or rustic speech by many familiar terms as old Nick. Okay? So they're calling Santa Claus old Nick. And old Nick is a name for the devil. Can you make the connection? Santa Claus is the devil. Okay? The title of this show is going to be called Santa is Satan. Because here's all the proof. Showing you right now, Santa is Satan. You know, you you probably might have laughed and you might have made fun of people who switched around the letters of Santa and you can make the same letters... If you move them around, spell out the word Satan. Oh, that's so silly. Ha ha ha. Santa Claus could be Satan. But here you go. Here's the evidence. It's not so funny now, is it? Well, if you take, if you don't think that the devil's real, then you will think it's funny still. But you're in for a rude awakening. Uh, hopefully you'll, you'll awake before you die and you get saved. But if you don't, you're going to be a rooting for a rude awakening when you die. Nicholas is one of the most common devil's names in German, a name that remains today when Satan is referred as Old Nick. The shocking truth is Santa Claus originated from a character identified as the devil or Satan. Something else that fashioned our modern day Santa was the popular 
medieval Christmas plays of the 10th through the 16th century. These miracle moral mystery and passion dramas acted out scenes from the scriptures and the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church. Combining humor and religion, they flourished during the 15th century. It is significant that St. Nicholas was a dominant theme among these plays. Much of the myth and outlandish miracles of St. Nicholas originated from these dramas, and much of the bizarre characteristics of Santa were planted in these Christmas plays. In the classic Teutonic mythology, author Jacob Grimm provides us with some revealing detail into St. Nicholas's transformation into Santa. Notice, in the following excerpt from Teutonic mythology, where Nicholas converts himself into the necked Ruprecht, the devil, a man of clobes, a man of claws, Grimm states the characters of Nicholas and Neck Ruprecht get mixed and Claus himself is the man. All right. Here's the quote. There's the full quote. You can go back and read that yourself. But he tells him Santa Claus changes into uh, the black devil. From Grimm's account in the early 1100s, the transformation of St. Nicholas into Santa Claus from the devil Neck Ruprecht, it was in full throttle. There is not enough space in this book to adequately document the influence and inspiration of the medieval plays into the making of Santa. But let us examine Santa's trademark, ho, ho, ho. Okay? So we already saw proof that Santa is Krampus and Krampus is the devil. So Santa is the devil. Okay? But now check out this. Because all these details have significance. Alright? All these details have significance. And we're going to talk about the ho, ho, ho right now. All right. Uh, I actually have to pause the show real quick. I'll be right back. Sorry about that. We're back. All right. Let's get into the ho, ho, ho thing. All right. So let's examine Santa's trademark. Ho, ho, ho. Most people have no idea where this came from. And more importantly, whom it came from. All right. Where does the ho, ho, ho come from? In the drama before Shakespeare, a sketch author, Frank Ireson describes the popular miracle play. Notice the description of the devil as shaggy and hairy. Uh, sounds like Santa. And notice the devil's trademark exclamation and entering was ho, ho, ho. Okay. So during this um, play, this drama, this the character of the devil would come in and he would say ho, ho, ho. So ready? Besides the allegorical pers- personages, there were two standing characters very prominent in moral plays, the devil and vice. The devil was no doubt introduced from the miracle plays where he had figured so amusingly. He was made as hideous as possible by his mask and dress, the latter being generally of a shaggy and hairy character, and he was duly provided with a tail. His ordinary exclamation on entering was, Ho, ho, ho! What a fellow am I! Okay? The devil, when he entered, said, ho, ho, ho. Further confirmation that Santa is the devil. Here's another one. Seifker also collaborates the devil's trademark, ho, ho, ho. He said this, in these plays, the devil's common entry line, known as the devil's bluster, was ho, ho, ho. The devil's bluster. The origins and evolution of St. Nicholas. The devil's trademark, ho, 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 was carried over from the early medieval miracle plays to the popular old English play, Bomilio, as the following lines from the play verify. Here's a line from the play. What? And I come, 
I conjure thee, foul spirit, down to hell. Ho, 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 the devil, the devil. A comes, a comes, a comes upon me. All right? From an old English play. Author Tony Rentergem concludes his extensive research into the origin of Santa with the following statement. I can only conclude that the original ancestor of our modern Santa Claus is none other than the mythological Dark Helper. A faint memory of Hearn or Pan. Uh, Krampus is very similar to Pan, the ancient shamanic, na- shamanic nature of the old religion. Note, Herney or Pan is the horned god. It is common knowledge that Pan and Herney are popular names for Satan. The Satanic Bible lists Pan as one of the infernal names of Satan. Yep, so Pan is definitely identified with Satan. Uh, we're not going to get into that now. I talked about it in another show I did recently. Um... I don't know what show it was. It was about oh, it was about music. I think it was in the uh, drums one, the one about drums. You go back to listen to that one. I talked about the pipes and the uh, I talked about uh, Pan during that section. So go back and listen to that. After researching scores of books and material on the origin of Santa Claus, by far the best sub book on the subject is Santa Claus: Last of the Wild Men: The Origins and Evolution of Saint Nicholas, authored by late University of Kansas author Phyllis Seifker. This is no child's book, but a scholarly exploration into the origin of Santa Claus. It is published by the prestigious McFarland Publishers, a leading publisher of reference and academic books. This book carries no Christian bias, but is simply a secular, non-Christian scholastic study. With that in mind, the following analysis by Sifker is even more alarming. Check out what he said. The fact is that Santa and Satan are alter egos, brothers, They have the same origin. On the surface, the two figures are polar opposites, but underneath they share the same parent and both retain many of the old symbols associated with their father. From these two paths, he arrived at both the warmth of our fireplace and in the flames of hell. Santa is Satan. There you go. That's the truth. And when you tell your kids that Santa is watching them and he's he knows when you're awake and he knows when you're sleeping and he's going to see if you're naughty or nice, you're talking about the devil. And that's why the next section we're going to talk about here is Santa Claus versus Jesus Christ. Okay? We're going to make a comparison here. But before we go into that, just so you get the full experience of What Krampus really is, they still have parades and Krampus runs today where people dress up as Krampus, run through the streets, and scare little children. So let's take a little look at that and we'll play this video clip right here of Krampus. Hey, what's that right there? Looks like a nice pentagram, an inverted pentagram carved into the head of this devil character 
and it almost looks like a woman, and they get right in the face of this child, telling the child to come here. Now, this couldn't, they couldn't get a better picture of Satan's agenda than right here. This devil trying to lure the child to come to him. And that's the whole point of Santa Claus. That's the whole point. I'm going to show you one more thing down here a little bit. It's fun for the whole family. Here you go. There's a little bit, a little bit more. All right, that's enough of that. So, you can see just fun for the whole family, right? I mean, seriously, though, if you are a parent, you have got to be sick in the head to bring your child to that thing, that event, and and expose them to that. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with those parents? And they're just like laughing. Oh, look, the children are being scared by devils. By these evil, disgusting-looking, devilish creatures that people are dressing up as. Isn't that so fun and wonderful? Yeah, I'm sure the children love it. You know, it's um, it's just ridiculous. It's blatant evil right in everyone's face. And it's all fun, but that's how Satan does it. He makes evil fun. It appears fun, right? The Bible says, the pleasures of sin for a season. There is pleasure in sin for a season. It's fun, right? It's fun. Then you die and you go to hell. What shall a profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Okay? So, anyways, that's a little bit of Krampus um, scaring the children and uh, entertaining people. Evil, evil stuff. Now, let's end the study here with the comparison between Santa Claus versus Jesus Christ. So, what um Let's look at this comparison. Look at the, look at the lyrics to the Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out, you better not cry, better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town, okay? So you got to behave cuz Santa Claus is coming. He's making a list and checking us twice. Going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Okay. So Santa Claus is going to judge the children. He's going to find out who's bad and good. Well, Number one, he's acting like God, determining who's good or bad. Number two, it's on the basis of their work. So it's teaching work salvation. Well, if you're, if they say, if you want to be good, just be good for goodness sake. Just do good things, do good deeds. And ever, all about Christmas. It's all about giving to charity, giving things away, doing good deeds uh, once a year. Cause it's like, it's an indulgence. It covers up your sin and uh, it's doing a good deed. Well, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? Your salvation is not of good works. No matter what good you can do, no matter what good you do, that doesn't save you. It's only through Jesus Christ dying for your sins, taking the punishment that you deserve, and that you put your faith in him. That's what saves you. Okay? Not by you trying to be good. And try not to be naughty. Okay, so that teaches that false notion. And then it says, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So now Santa Claus is omnipresent. 
I mean, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He can see you. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Don't be good because of God. Be good for goodness sake. Better watch out. Better not pout. You better not cry. Tell anyone why Santa Claus is coming to town. Okay, he's coming. Since God were, were, God's word warns us to beware of tradition, it says, um, don't be spoiled by the tradition of the world, rudiments of the world. Don't be spoiled by it. We shouldn't be surprised to find the devil right in the middle of the world's most celebrated holiday. Lucifer's desire has always been to dethrone God and exalt himself. He desires worship. Perhaps you've never thought of it, but please note how Satan robs the Lord Jesus Christ of his glory by spreading the Santa Claus tradition. All right, let's look at the comparison. They teach that Santa is eternal. A child knows nothing of his beginning. To a child, Santa has always existed. What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, and it's not true. Santa's not eternal. He's a fake and a phony and since he's the devil, the devil had a beginning. The devil was created originally by God as Lucifer, and then he fell and became Satan, created being. But Jesus Christ is eternal, and Jesus said this, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation one eight. Amen. Here's another point. Santa lives in the north. Tradition holds that Santa Claus lives at the North Pole, a place above the rest of us. What does the Bible say? Jesus Christ lives in the north. Beautiful beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Where did Lucifer want to go? He wanted to exalt his throne uh, above the mountain of the congregation on the sides of the north. That's where Lucifer wanted to go. Um... Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the sides of the north, the city of the great king. I don't know if I messed up that scripture song, but that is a scripture song. Um, but anyways, it's on the sides of the north. Santa's trying to usurp everything about Jesus Christ. Here's another one. Santa wears red clothing. Santa wears a red furry suit. What's the Bible say? Jesus Christ wears red clothing. What do you mean? Uh, and he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So he was dressed in white, but his white clothing was dipped in blood. And if you look at Santa's outfit, it is red and white. So there you go. Santa has white hair. Santa's always pictured as an old man with white hair like wool. Well, guess what? Jesus Christ has white hair. Revelation 1.14, his head and his hairs were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. That's how the Bible describes Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation with white hair. Here's another one. Santa flies around giving gifts. Santa has the ability to defy the laws of gravity and fly around giving gifts to people. Well, guess what the Bible says about Jesus? Jesus Christ ascended and gave gifts unto men. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But unto every one of us is given unto the grace, given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. But these aren't carnal, materialistic gifts. These are spiritual gifts, much more important. Okay, so that's another way that Santa try to, tries to counterfeit. Here's another one. Santa is coming soon. During the Christmas season is emphasized over and over again, Santa's coming. Santa Claus is coming. But look what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is coming soon. Revelation 22.20, he which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly, even so, 
Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He comes quickly. Jesus is coming soon. That's what the Bible says. Here's another one. Santa is said to be omniscient. Children are taught that Santa knows when you've been good. He knows when you've been bad. But Jesus Christ is omniscient. Santa is not. The devil is not. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3. Here's another one. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore, think ye evil in your hearts. Matthew 9.4. Jesus Christ knows everything. Here's another one. Santa, they try to say, is omnipresent. Santa must be omnipresent because he has the ability to visit over a billion homes in a 24-hour period. That's over 1,100 per second. Okay? All these homes in the world. That's impossible. Okay? But Jesus Christ is omnipresent. Matthew 18.20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And there's many other scriptures that talk about Jesus Christ's omnipresence. They try to teach that Santa's omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. He has the ability to carry presents for over a billion children. But Jesus Christ is really omnipotent. The Bible says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus Christ is omnipotent. He has all the power. He is God. He's the one that we should be worshiping and not talking all this trash about Santa Claus. Santa is the devil. It's the counterfeit. It's trying to replace Jesus Christ. Is teaching children a false God. And it's evil. It's wicked. And you need to stop telling children about this trash. All right? So let's finish up this teaching with talking about a couple more things real quick. Let's talk about the elves. Santa has elves, right? He has spirit helpers called elves. All right? Let's talk about what elves really are, okay? Because you got you think about elves. People are taught in, in fables and all that type of stuff. Ooh, elves and they're cool little people with pointy ears. Isn't that so cute? It's not. Okay, and let's read what the definition of elves are according to the facts, okay, of history, of the dictionary, and of what the it says that elves are in the occult, because they will tell you what it, they really believe about it. Elf, from 1820 Webster Dictionary, is a wandering spirit right off the bat. It's a spirit, okay? Now, is this the good angel you know, from God? No, it's not. A fairy, a hobgoblin, an imaginary being which our rude ancestor is supposed to inhabit unfrequented places and in various ways to affect mankind. Hence, in Scottish, elf shot is an elf arrow, an arrow head or f- of flint supposed to be shot by elves. And it signifies also a disease supposed to be produced by the agency of spirits. Okay, elf. Uh, an evil spirit, a devil. That's one of the definitions of an elf from the dictionary. All right. Now look at this. Look at this next explanation. The following is taken from the chapter, The Elements and Their Inhabitants, from the book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly Palmer Hall. Okay. Manly P. Hall was a 33rd degree Freemason, very well-known uh, occultist, he was very respected authority in Freemasonry. He knew a lot about witchcraft and the occult. And he wrote in his book about elves. And they were under a classification of spirits called elementals. And see exactly what he said. That's what it says in his book. 
For the most comprehensive and lucid ex- exposition of occult pneumatology, uh, of the philosophy, the branch dealing with spiritual substances, extant, mankind is indebted to Philippus Aurelius Paracelsus, okay? Paracelsus, uh, prince of alchemists and hermetic philosophers and the true possessor of the royal secret, the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life, okay? So I'm not saying this. This is what Manly P. Hall is saying, okay? Just as visible nature is populated by an infinite number of living creatures, so according to Paracelsus, this alchemist, the invisible spiritual counterpart of visible nature, composed of the tenuous principles of the visible elements, is inhabited by a host of peculiar beings to whom he has given the name elementals, okay? These are these category of beings that they're, they're called, elementals, and which have later been termed the nature spirits. Paracelsus divided these people of the elements into four distinct groups, which he called gnomes, undines, sylphs, and salamanders. He taught that they were really living entities, many resembling human beings in shape and inhabiting worlds of their own, unknown to man because his undeveloped senses were incapable of functioning beyond the limitations of the grosser elements. Okay? And then it says, the civilizations of Greece, Rome, Egypt, China, India believed implicitly in satyrs, sprites, and goblins, okay? So we're going to look quickly at what the Bible say about satyrs, because it's these types of things, and then we'll look at the category of gnomes, because that's the category that the elves are found in within the occult, okay? So first of all, satyrs. The Bible talks about satyrs. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19, says this, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms... The beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. There shall be the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there." And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, the dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is cut near come, and her days shall not be prolonged. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think the Bible's talking about some mythological creature that doesn't exist. The Bible's not fantasy. The Bible is reality. It's historic. It's accurate historically, scientifically, spiritually, archaeologically, in every uh, which way, every aspect of truth the Bible is accurate. And when it talks about satyrs, it means satyrs, okay? There's another scripture where it talks about that, Isaiah 34, 14. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. So what does that mean? What is the satyr? Okay, why is the Bible talking about satyrs? Well, let's read what some of the old commentators had to say about this and satyrs shall dance there a sort of monstrous creature with the ancients painted half men and half goat the upper part of the of them like men except the horns on their head and the lower parts like goats and all over hairy and the word here uses use signifies hairy and is used for goats and sometimes for devils either because they have appeared in this form, as kimchi says, to them that believe them, or because they, by their appearance, inject such horror in men as cause their hair to stand upright. Hence the Targum, Jarki, and kimchi interpret it of devils here. So, they're mainly, John Gill's mainly saying that the general consensus is that these satyrs are 
devils. And these devils are appearing as these half men, half goat creatures, kind of like Pan. The Targum renders it demons. And with this well agrees the account of Babylon or Rome as fallen, and that it should be a habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. John Gill again. Here's another comment. The following remarks of Joseph Wolf may throw light on this passage. Check out this quote here. I then went to the mountain of Sanjar, which was full of Yezidis. 150 years ago, they believed in the glorious doctrine of the Trinity and worshipped the true God, but now, but being severely persecuted by... The neighboring Yezidis, they have now enjoined them and are worshippers of the devil. These people frequent the ruins of Babylon and dance around them. On a certain night, which they call the Night of Life, they hold their dances around the desolate ruins in honor of the devil. The passage which declares that satyrs shall dance there evidently has respect to this very practice. The original word translated satyr literally means, according to the testimony of the most eminent Jewish rabbis, devil worshipers okay so it's associated with devils and devil worshipers it is a curious circumstance says mr rich in his memoir on the ruins of babylon page 30 in describing the muhalibe that here i first heard the oriental account of satyrs i had always imagined the belief of their existence was confined to the mythology of the west but a Choader, who was with me when I examined this ruin, mentioned by accident that in this desert an animal is found resembling a man from the head to the waist, but having the thighs and legs of a sheep or a goat. He said also that the Arabs hunt it with dogs and eat the lower parts, abstaining from the upper on account of their resemblance to the human species. The Arabians call them Syed as Sad and say that they abound in some woody places near some Ava on the Euphrates. That's what Albert Bond says. Uh, and John Gill, John Trapp said, and satyrs or devils in borrowed shapes and hideous apparitions, okay? So mostly people say it's devils in, in different apparitions, but this guy is saying that some of the Orientals and the Arabians said that this was really some amalgamation creature it looks like part man, part goat, and they like ate the lower half of it, the legs. <laughs> so who knows about that? The point is, is that these creatures appear in these ruins in these places where God judges. It says in the ruins like Babylon, places where God judges, where it's desolate, where there's no human beings around. There's these owls and dragons and satyrs and all these creatures that don't appear when humans are around. All right. Back to secret teachings of all ages so we can finish up about the word elf. They peopled the sea with mermaids, the rivers and fountains with nymphs, the air with fairies, the fire with lares and penates, the earth with fawns, dryads, and hamadryads. These nature spirits were held in the highest esteem and propitiatory offerings were made to them. Occasionally, as the result of atmospheric conditions or of the peculiar sensitiveness of the devotee, they became visible. Many authors wrote concerning them in terms which signified they had actually beheld these inhabitants of nature's finer realms. A number of authorities are of the opinion that many of the gods worshipped by the pagans were elementals. For some of these invisibles were believed to be of commanding stature and magnificent deportment. All right, remember, we're talking about, um, this is from the book, Secret Teachings of All Ages. And then just real quick here, the Greeks gave the name Daimon 
or demon to some of these elementals, especially those of the higher orders, and worshipped them. Probably the most famous of these demons is the mysterious spirit which instructed Socrates and of whom that great philosopher spoke in the highest terms. Those who have devoted much study to the invisible constitution of man realize that it is quite probable that the demon of Socrates and the angel of Jacob Bomi were in reality not elementals, but the overshadowing divine natures. You know, that's a bunch of trash. That's stupid. They were devils. That's all there is to it. Uh, okay, so whatever. It talks about more about them worship these demons as gods. Who cares? All right, let's get to the gnome thing and be done with it. All right, the gnomes. The elementals who dwell in that attenuated body of the earth, which is called the Tereus ether, are grouped together under the general heading of gnomes. The name is probably derived from the Greek genomus, meaning earth dweller. Just as there are many types of human beings evolving through the objective physical elements of... Okay, this is a bunch of jar, trash. Okay, so they say there's many types of gnomes. These spirits work, blah, blah, blah. They have power over rocks and flora and all this trash. Okay. Okay, it says they work with stones and gems and all this stuff. Who cares? Well, this is interesting. They live in caves far down from what the Scandinavians call the land of Nibelungen. In Wagner's wonderful opera cycle, The Ring of the Nibelungen... Alberic makes himself king of the pygmies and forces these little creatures to gather for him the treasures collected, concealed beneath the surface of the earth. Okay, so there's Wagner's pagan trash. But here's the point. Besides the pygmies, there are other gnomes who are called tree and forest sprites. To this group belong the Silvestres, Satyrs, Pans, Dryads, Hamadryads, Dirtalus, Elves brownies and little old men of the woods so under the category of gnomes are elves and what are the gnomes what are the elves they're elementals they are devils that's what they are so what does that mean that means um so this is from the book secret teachings of all ages by manly p hall so that means that santa claus who is the devil has a bunch of elves helping him build toys for children what are the elves a bunch of devils so he's got an army of devils making toys for little children. And that's what you're teaching your kids. All right. And Jesus Christ has spirit helpers called angels. Uh, Matthew 4.11 says, The devil leaveth them, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So that's another counterfeit. Santa Claus has his elves, spirit elves helping him, but Jesus Christ has angels that help him. Santa Claus was also known as Kris Kringle, a corruption of the German Christkindle, Christ child. This has to be one of the most subtle of Satan's blasphemies, yet most Christians are unaware of it. Total, he takes on a name of Christ and it's total blasphemy. All right. And I talked about here, this is about, I originally made these notes when that Krampus movie came out. They came out with a movie about uh, Krampus. I'm not going to talk about that. You know, I'll post the notes in the description. You want to read about that, what I can. It pushes some wicked agendas and some feminist feminism and stuff. But uh, that's pretty much it. That's the end of the teaching. So, what's the point here? Santa is not Saint Nicholas. And Saint Nicholas probably didn't even exist. But Santa is not Saint Nicholas. He is Krampus. And Krampus is identified with Thor, Odin, and ultimately the devil. And then we find out that Santa is Krampus. So Santa is the devil. Santa is Satan. 
And then, so not only are you telling kids that Santa Claus is real, and then they find out that he's not real, so they don't, they, they're they mad at you that you lied to them, and then you try to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, they don't want to believe that, because he seems like a fairy tale like uh, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, you lied to them about all this other trash, okay? But not only that, you're literally teaching them pagan, heathen idolatry, and, uh, and a version of Satan with his helper devils, you're teaching them to uh, try to uh, be good for Satan and not be naughty for the devil. That's what literally what you're teaching them. And it doesn't matter if you don't use the word Satan and you use the word Santa because Satan likes to come as an angel of light. He likes to come under other names, other mythologies, but that's what it's teaching. If you're not teaching the truth of the word of God and of Jesus Christ, you are not teaching the truth. And Jesus said, they that must that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You cannot, uh, Jesus is the truth. Satan and Santa are a lie. Stop teaching children lies. You're putting a stumbling block before them. It's very wicked. It's very bad. And you need to stop doing it. Okay? So... Put down the Santa Claus stuff, put it away, put away the Christmas, and start serving the Lord in spirit and in truth, and do what's right according to the Word of God. The Bible said, Jesus said, thy word is truth. Okay? Worship Jesus Christ, serve him, glorify him, reject all the lies, throw away all the traditions, burn all the Santa Claus stuff, get it out of your house, and stand for the truth. Thank you. And uh, for watching another episode, Sound the Battle Cry Radio, please like, share, and subscribe. And uh, check out the old Christmas episode. Go back and watch some other ones. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. Next one we're going to talk about, uh, I think, Christian Liberty in Romans 14, Meat Offered to Idols. And then we're going to talk about some more music ones in the future, music as a weapon, and uh, stuff like that. All right? So thanks for watching. God bless you. Have a good night.